So what is so peculiar about this text, what has really bothered me um, about this text, and I know this is, this is why Drew and Robin gave it to me, is um, you might not notice it the first time you read it, but there's no dialogue. I almost said there's no words. There's words. It's a book. But there's no dialogue. There's, it's just like Luke just recorded bullet-pointed information of what happened. They went to Bethany. They worshipped. They, Jesus left. They went back to the temple. It's like there's no dialogue. The thing that's so peculiar is every other gospel account we have that records the ascension, every other recorded account we have of the ascension records this big, you probably know what it's called, Jesus' sort of last words to his disciples called the Great Commission. Like that's in all the other ones, but it's not in this one. And you would think if you titled your book, The Good News of Jesus Christ According to Luke, you would record the last words that he said. Josh gets it. And so that's like, just baffled me. Like, to be fair, there is clearly Jesus is saying something like, he led them out as far as Bethany, lifting up his hands, he blessed them. So he blessed them, but it doesn't say how or what he said. And then, you know, the disciples worshiped, but it doesn't say how. We don't know what they did to worship. Did they, did they pray? Did they sing? Did they yodel? We, we don't know. Like, but they worshiped him. But the dialogue's not there. So the point that Luke is trying to make is clearly not about what was said, but what was done. Does that make sense? And I've had to wrestle with that, trying to figure that out. And I think just as a small side note, that's good for all of us to do as you go home and you're reading the word for yourself and whatever kind of quiet time or personal devotional time you do, you're going to come to things that aren't a one-to-one -one application and are a little bit of a struggle when you read the Word. And that's good. Because in sitting with that and wrestling with that over the past couple weeks, I've felt so much closer to the Lord. I've, I've gotten to experience His presence, and He's shown me things that I never would have gotten if I just came up here and said, this is what Jesus said, go do it. Right? So wrestle with that. So what's happening is that Luke is far less concerned with the commission Jesus gave and far more concerned with the response of the disciples, what they did. So what did they do? That's our real question. And what made it important? And what I think, the reason Luke ends his gospel this way, because you turn the page and it's done. That's the end of the book. This is what you're left with. I think the reason he ended here is because that in this verse, in the disciples going to the temple, we see, this is a big statement, God's ultimate hope for his people being fulfilled. In this verse, we see God's ultimate hope for his people being fulfilled. How can I say that? I think it would be really helpful if we took a second to put ourselves in the shoes of the disciples, the sandals of the disciples for a second. So just, I just want you to kind of, if, you're, if it helps you close your eyes, close your eyes. If not, you can just imagine with me. We're going to use our imaginations. I want you to think about the crazy roller coaster ride that the last two months have been for these men. Two months ago, these men came to the city of Jerusalem for Passover, 
And with Jesus, and Jesus rode into the city on a donkey, and the people of the city came out, laid palm fronds all along his way so that he could walk over them, and then were worshiping him as king, Messiah, Savior, save us, Lord Jesus. People were calling him king, and they were with him. Days later, one of their own, one of their best friends who has seen Jesus perform miracles and heard his teachings and walked with him and ate with him, betrayed them to the Pharisees and handed Jesus over to be beaten, whipped, broken, bloodied. He had a crown of thorns jammed into his head, and the disciples watched this. He had to carry his cross through the city up to a hill, was nailed to that cross, and died. And then the disciples, as every one of us in this room would have, just so we're clear, we're not better than them, went into hiding because they were terrified that if someone saw them and recognized that they were the people that have been walking with Jesus, that they were going to kill them too. So they spent three days in terrified hiding. And then one day, three days later, that man that they saw die, Jesus, walks through a door not open the door and walk through the door, walked through the door, was with them for 40 days, and they were able to touch him and talk with him and eat with him. He opened their eyes to how all the Old Testament scriptures were about him, to what his new kingdom was going to be. Then he takes them out to a hill, blesses them, and then ascends into heaven and is gone. And what did the disciples do? They went to Jerusalem, to the temple. Okay. Um, I had a feeling that might be the reaction. Y'all are not nearly excited enough about what they did, okay? They went to Jerusalem, to the temple. Don't get excited yet. I'll tell you why. You should be excited. Don't, that would be fake if you gave it to me now. If we're going to understand what this, why this was so important why God's ultimate hope for his people is being fulfilled in this, we have to understand two things. One, we have to understand what's God's hope for his creation. The other thing we have to understand is what's the significance and meaning of the temple. So if we're going to understand God's hope for his people, his creation, it's helpful to go back to the beginning. So we're going to go back to Genesis, and I want us to like Take a, take a look at the first couple chapters of Genesis and understand what God's hope for his creation is. And so in Genesis, we see God create everything that is. And what I'm not concerned with this morning is how you think that happened. That, that's not the point this morning, okay? You, there's all kinds of ways you can believe that happened, and that's fine. There's room for, all, for most of that. Uh, not all of it. <laughs> But what I want us to focus on this morning is what is the picture of the garden that Scripture gives us, right? Not how it happened, but what was the garden like? What is that image that's, that the Scripture wants to sit with us, right? And we see two things. The overwhelming image that we're supposed to walk away with from the garden is these two things. One, that it's good. And the second thing is that God's with his creation, the overwhelming imagery of the garden is that it's good and that God is there. 
And so God's ultimate hope for his creation is that he would get to enjoy his creation by being with it. That he would get to enjoy his creatures by being with them. That's his ultimate hope for us. But then, of course, we rebel. And we say, you know, God, you know, we don't want to be with you. We actually, we want to, we'd rather be you. And we give God the finger and we bail. And what we see in our rebellion is that what we lose when God kicks the original people out of the garden is that what's lost in our rebellion against God is that we lose the full goodness of creation and we lose the full presence of God. And then the Bible is story after story after story of God making a way to once again be with his people, to restore the goodness of his creation and restore his presence with his creation. And we see this in um, the story of Moses in the burning bush. Like Moses is tending to some sheep, he finds this burning bush, the bush speaks to him and says, I am the presence of God, or at least as much of it as I can give you. And actually, you better not come any closer. Be careful. This is as much of my presence as I can give you. And then we see Moses up on the, the mountain, Mount Sinai, and God gives the Ten Commandments, and his presence was with him again, and he got even more of his presence. And then while the Israelites were wandering in the desert after God freed them from slavery in Egypt, he gave them a new way for his presence to be with them. He gave them the, the blueprints for this thing called a tabernacle, right? A tabernacle is, is essentially like this big tent, right? And it had a lot of layers to it. Um, there was a courtyard, and there was an outer court and an inner court, and then there was a center tent that was separated by all kinds of uh, uh, curtains, and they were, you couldn't go there. And God said, this place in the center of my tabernacle, this is where my presence will dwell with you. And as you're wandering around in the desert, you're to take this with you everywhere you go so my presence can be with you. And this theme of God's presence with his people is all over scripture. And we have very little time. <laughs> so I can't show you all of it, but I'll show you my favorite. Um, my favorite example of the theme of God trying to be present with his people. This involves the tabernacle. And um, if anyone, you don't even have to have finished it. Has anyone started reading Leviticus? <laughs> right? Like, that's a tough one. Um, Leviticus stumps me. It, it, it's a trouble for me because I just, I read the book of Leviticus and I'm constantly thinking like, there's so many laws in there that just make zero sense to me. And it's not that they don't make sense to me in 2018, because I get that. But what doesn't make sense to me is to go back in the, to that time and to think, God, there is so much brokenness and hurt and poverty in the world at that time, and you're giving these people laws about what? Like, is that the most important thing you could command them to do? And one law that's really bothered me is, you know, when the Israelites were wandering in the desert, Jesus, or not Jesus, God gave them commands about how they were allowed to set up camp when they slept at night. It's like, you can set your camp up like this. That's important. That just never made sense to me. A couple months ago, Laura and I, in our Bible reading plan that we're doing, that she's much further ahead of than me, um, 
we, we were in Leviticus, and I was rereading the account of God telling his people how they were supposed to set up camp, and it blew me away. So what he said to his people was, here's how you're supposed to set up camp. I want you to put the tabernacle right here. My presence is right there. And then to the north of that, I want three, three tribes to camp out. And then to the south, I want three tribes to camp out just this far. And then to the west, I want these three tribes to camp. And then to the east, I want these three tribes to camp. And so if you were to look at a picture of what the Israelite camp looked like when they were wandering in the desert, it would look something like this. All of the tribes encircling the tabernacle. So God commands them how to set up camp, not to say, I said this, do it. Do this because I said so. What he's saying in his law about how they can set up camp is he's saying, please do this because I don't ever want to be too far from you. I don't ever want you to be too far from me. And then we see as we continue in the story that the Israelites got their own land and they were established as a kingdom and a king was, uh, came about in the land and God gave him the vision and the resources to build a temple. In their capital city of Jerusalem, Solomon uh, built a temple and God said, this is now no, lo- this is, no longer will my presence dwell in the tabernacle, but now that you have your own land and you have security and you have stability, my, temp- my presence is going to dwell here in the temple in the Holy of Holies, in the temple, in the city of Jerusalem, right there. And then we fast forward to this moment where 11 men are standing on a hill with Jesus, and he ascends to heaven. And his 11 disciples are so desperate to be in his presence that they go to the one place that God promised his presence would be. They go to Jerusalem, and they go to the temple. So you see Luke's point here. The reason that he ends his book here, it's not to say, here's what Jesus commanded, although that's very important. His point is, what my point is this morning, is that what it means to be God's people is to be a people who desire to be in the presence of God. What it means to be God's people is to be people who desperately desire to be in the presence of God. And this is what makes the God of Christianity so amazing, is because what he ultimately wants from his people is not our sacrifices, is not our obedience, it's not our submission, it's to be with us. That's a God worth following. That's a God worth desiring to be with. So these men went to the temple to be with God the best way they knew how. But the good news for us this morning is that God's presence is no longer limited to the temple. Through Jesus Christ's death and resurrection, we're told 
that God has made a way for his presence no longer to just dwell in the temple and we have to go there to get to it, but he's made a way to let his presence by the very power of the Holy Spirit dwell in us, dwell in our hearts. His presence is with us in our hearts. In in the New Testament, when they talk about how the Holy Spirit dwells in God's people, the word that they use to describe how that happens is the word for tabernacle. It's like he's set up his dwelling place in us. He lives in us. He's with us. Always. And the implications of this are huge. They're massive. Because if God's presence is living in us, that means that we take him with us everywhere we go. That means that when we go places, God's presence is invading that place. It means when you go to work, or when you go to school, God's presence is there. It means when you go and serve the impoverished or the oppressed, you are not just bringing them money or food. You're bringing them the presence of God. That's amazing. When you're lonely, when you're afraid, God's presence is with you. When you're angry, His presence is there comforting you, bringing peace. And it also means that His presence is with us now. And so when you come into this room on Sunday mornings, you're bringing the presence of God with you. That makes this time incredibly sacred. Look at how much of the presence of God is here. Look at all these people. We're all bringing the presence of God that lives in us into this space. This space is crazy sacred. This is awesome. So if you've had a hard week, if you've spent a lot of this week running from the presence of God, if you feel far from him, if you feel distant from him, if you don't feel like good enough, welcome home. This is where you should be. This is where we need to be. I mean, this is what, this, I'm really trying to drive this point home because this is what has weighed on me so much this past week. And even this morning, this idea that the presence of God is with me everywhere I go and how desperately I want it, how desperately I desire to be more in his presence. Because uh, even this morning, right, I'm uh, driving down Union and I'm coming from Starbucks to bring Laura her flat white. She, she's gotten accustomed to getting that on Sunday, and she needs it. And I'm driving down Union, and I'm in the middle lane, and I need to get over into the right lane to turn right on Cooper to go home. So I get over into the, I took my turn signal on, get over in the right lane. I'm where I need to be, turn only. This car zooms past me on the left gets over in my, I could feel them doing it too. I knew what they were doing. I could tell. Gets over in my lane. Did they use a turn signal? 
you, you live in Memphis. And so gets over in front of me, then we get to the red light, and guess what they do? Stop. Yeah, they stop. Okay, they did, they stopped. But guess where they're going? Straight. My turn signal's on, they know I'm turning. And I'm just sitting there in the car. I, the light turned green, I made my turn, and I'm just like losing my mind in the car. I'm like gripping the steering wheel, raging out, listening to King's Kaleidoscope, some song about peace. Like I'm just, I, because they made me take an extra seven seconds before I could make my turn. Like I, I was livid and I was thinking in that moment, I was just like, I gotta go preach. <laughs> I gotta go preach about the presence of God being with me and I'm realizing, guys, every day, and this might sound like heresy, I don't think it is, but so often the presence of God that dwells in me just is not enough for me. Like, I'm still losing my mind over someone costing me seven seconds in my car, and I love my car. Why is that? Here's what I think it is, guys. The truth is that I need the presence of God that lives in you. I need that. Josh, I need the presence of God that lives in you to be with me. Jamin, presence of God that lives in you, I need that. We all need that. And y'all, there are People who show up here on Sunday mornings and they don't necessarily even know that what they're searching for is the presence of God, but you've got it and you need to give it to them. Amen. Amen. Yes. This place should be the most hospitable, loving, caring place every single Sunday morning that we come in here. And it should be a rest for us, Christian. We should be able to come here and experience the presence of God and rest here. And that's a great comfort. But it also comes with a great challenge. Because if there are people coming in here on Sunday mornings looking for the presence of God, and we have it, and we need to give it to them, that means you've got to show up. Oh, not a lot of amens on that one. <laughs> I've been in Memphis for a few years, and I've been on staff at this church for, I'm not joking right now, I've been on staff at this church because it's going to be my third summer here, and I don't know what it is about y'all, Christ City Church, and summer in Memphis, but you hate coming to church. Yeah, that's right. Y'all, some of y'all are the ones, you're just trying to mask it. You're trying to make the people around you not think it's you I'm talking to. It's you. Stuff happens. People get sick. You go on vacation, but y'all listen to me. That's how my mom would do. <laughs> Going to Nashville every weekend is not worth not coming into the presence of God that's here, and it's not worth not giving someone who needs it the presence of God that dwells in you. Some of you are here right now, and that's great. But you know that you weren't? On time. And we sing, we sing three songs before the sermon starts. Some of y'all only get one. 
people need the presence of God that dwells in you, and you're denying them that. If you're a Christian, if what it means to be the people of God is to be a person who desires the presence of God, and you don't have passion to get to church on time, what are you doing? I love you. I promise you I do. But y'all, we, we got to get better at this. There's a world out there that needs the presence of God. We need to come here and rest, and we need to go out there and take the presence of God to them. And some of them are coming in here, and they need what you have. And if that's you this morning, and you've come in here seeking the presence of God, maybe you don't even know that's what you're looking for. I'm so grateful that you're here. I'm so thankful that you're here. I hope that you felt it. I hope that you've felt the presence of God here. This place, there's, there's a reason that the vision statement of Christ City Church is a place to belong and a place to know God. That's not random. That's not just cute and fits on whatever we're making. We believe that people come into this room and they should feel like they belong. We make them feel like they belong. And if you stick around long enough, we believe that you'll get to know God. If you stay in his presence long enough, you'll get to know him. There are a lot of you in this room, though, that are doing a great job. You are taking the presence of God out into your workplace, and you're bringing it here, and you're doing mercy ministry in the power of the Spirit. And to you, I just want to say, keep it up. Thank you. We are seeing the presence of God spread all over Memphis because of you. Keep doing that. And if that's not you and you feel discouraged and you feel challenged, that's okay. I I don't have enough of the presence of God living in me right now. I need you. And so it's okay to need others to help you, to encourage you, to go out and do ministry with them, to learn from them. If you're sitting here this morning and you feel something inside you, like you walked in here and you were like, I don't know what I'm looking for, but maybe I'll give church a chance. Maybe I'll give church a second chance. And you feel something stirring in you. That might just be the presence of God. And we're about to move into a time of communion and prayer. And there'll be people down here to my right and to my left who would love nothing more than to pray with you and talk to you about what that feeling is, what the presence of God is, how you can get more of it. What do you do? Please don't let fear stop you from coming and seeking the presence of God because it's the one thing we were created for. And it's his ultimate hope for us. And it's what we all desperately need more of. Would you pray with me?
God, we need you. We want to be a people who are in your presence. Some of us just want to want to be people who are in your presence. We're so thankful that you give it freely, that your presence is something we can all have, we can all experience. I'm so thankful for the Holy Spirit's work in my life and in the life of so many of us, and I pray that your presence would descend upon us in even more beautiful ways, in deeper ways, that we would feel you, that we would know you, that we would love you, and that we would take that out to a world that desperately needs it as we come to the table this morning. It's in your name we pray.